Well, like we said, as we received our new members this morning, there seems to be an innate human sense to want to take the internal realities uh, that we have inside of us and find proof for them. Uh, we do this whenever we borrow money, right? Somebody tells you that they need some money, you loan it to them. It's not that you don't trust their intentions to pay it back, but don't you feel that thing inside? It's like, well, okay, that's fine, but why don't you sign your name to this agreement? We'll uh, make it official. Or let's say maybe, young ladies, that you have a young man who expresses his heart to you in the most passionate and sentimental of ways, that he loves you and he cares for you and he wants to be with you for forever. But you can't, and you really want to believe him. You think that you do believe him, as a matter of fact. But there's a little thing inside of you that's like, well, I mean, you could always just go ahead and ask me to marry you. Let's make this official, right? Of course, we want to lean on the ancient wisdom passed down through us from Beyonce. If you like it, you should have put a ring on it. There's something a little odd about old people quoting from contemporary pop music, isn't it? It's a little bit like a dog dancing on its hind legs. It's kind of cute, but not natural. Don't ever do that again. The point is this, it's perfectly natural and understandable for us to, to look inside the human heart and see these internal motivations that are there and need for those things to be made outside of us and realistic to us. We want proof. We want certainty. We want things to be substantive. We use these expressions like, well, you know, if you really want to make this deal, then you need to put your money where your mouth is. Or we say things like, look, we can talk all day long, but it's time to put up or shut up. That's what we're saying. Well, we've been walking this semester through this extraordinary foundational book of Genesis as it lays out for us a distinctly Christian vision of the world. We've seen how in the opening we get how the Bible orients God's people around the glory of God. We've considered the dignity of our humanity as being people created in God's image. We've dealt with this rather delicate topic of human sexuality and marriage. We've looked into the very heart of evil itself and seen its origins and its nature. But of course, we've also seen God unfold a plan of grace and redemption and mission, of course, to heal the world from its own self-destruction. But this morning we come to the last message in our series, even though it's just sort of the beginning of a whole, uh, the, the rest of Scripture. And, as, and what we see it is God deciding to help Abram enter into a conscious acceptance of the contract that he's making between him. And what he wants him to do is, is to mark Abram out from the rest of humanity. And so Abram's contract with God now, as of this time in chapter 17, is going to be made public. And it's going to form the very fabric of how he's going to bind all of Abraham's descendants together into a new humanity. I will say this. I don't think I can overstate this enough. God's intention with the world is not merely to save a bunch of individual souls so that they can have the hope of heaven when they die. Granted, it's not less than that, of course, but it's so much more. Because God's intention is to take isolated individuals and form them into a group, into a body, into a congregation of believing people. Which means, among a lot of other things, simply this. That the inertia of your salvation is supposed to be pulling you into relationship with other believing people, rallied around these great unifying truths about how the world really works. In other words, God intends for our invisible commitments to be made visible. 
And that visible entity that he is fashioning is going to turn into eventually, when we get to the New Testament, to the thing that you and I know as the church. That's where this is going. And it all starts with God approaching this new family that he's called, solely by grace, by the way, and marking them out as select, as different, distinct, as beacons to the rest of the world of a new way of living in the world and relating to other image bearers. The question then for this text is, well, how is he going to do that? Well, the passage suggests it's going to happen in three different ways. By calling Abraham to, number one, be blameless. Number two, to apply the sign. And then finally, to become the father of many nations. Let's take that first one. What does it mean to be blameless? Well, we're at this familiar place in the story because God is coming again to reaffirm this contract he's forging with Abram. And it's as certain as his own character. Look at verse 2. He said that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Same covenant that we rehearsed back in chapter 12 a few weeks ago. But this time, it includes instructions on how Abram is to make this relationship his own. Look at verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Okay, so this is the first plank of how God exhorts Abram uh, to, do, to, to, live, to walk among him. First he says, walk before me, which is a really interesting way to put it, don't you think? What God is saying is, Abram, I want the living of your life to be such that you reference me in everything that you do. Uh, make life um, uh, an exercise in walking with me that my presence might go with you everywhere because my presence is everywhere. Uh, the reformers actually jumped hold on this idea in a big way when they used to talk about a Christian's role is to live life quorum Deo. It's the Latin phrase for living life before the face of God. It's really interesting. There's no, there is no Hebrew word uh, translated the word presence. Wherever you see it in the Old Testament translated presence, its literal translation is the word face. To live in God's presence is to live before the face of God, quorum Deo. And I wish we had time to unpack it, but suffice to say this, your face in many ways is, is your knowing mechanism. You ever thought about that? If you look somebody in the face, that means you mean it. If you stare into someone's eyes, that means you really know them. So what is God saying? He's saying, Abram, this relationship that I want to have with you is going to be marked by a deep and powerful sense of knowing, of relationship, which is a great segue to the next attribute that God asks Abram to embody, which is blamelessness. Walk before me and be blameless. Now look, we got to be clear here, because I do think that when you hear that word blameless, your first instinct is to think, oh, he's talking about Moral perfection. God wants me never to do anything wrong, which feels a little bit like a tall order, but interestingly, that's not exactly how that word translates. We've encountered this word before. The Hebrew word is tamim, and it occurs all the way back in uh, the Noah story, chapter 9, verse 6, where there you see it's got a little different nuance because the root word of that word literally means something that is whole, something that is integrated. In other words, to be blameless in this Hebrew word's meaning means that you have put all of the energies in your life into one pursuit, one passion, one overriding concern in life. 
Okay, to put those two together then, what God is saying is, is that Abram's acceptance of this covenant that God is forging is going to be about integrating all of his life around God's lordship over it all. Does that make sense? <laughs> to be blameless means to be whole. It means to be complete. And so God is saying this relationship that we have, Abram, will never work if I am just a spoke on the wheel of your life. It'll never function that way. Actually, i got to be the center of the wheel, and everything else emanates from that fundamental relationship between us. The Reformers, again, would translate this into a slogan uh, that went through the Reformation that went like this, to God alone be the glory. That is, there was a desire to see every part of life integrated with the reality that is God. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, well, that sounds awfully obvious, Les. Ah, you may not be paying attention if you think that. Because it seems as if there's this inertia as the church has marched on for some 2,000 years to, to disintegrate uh, Christian living. In other words, there's a temptation always to fragment our lives into one of two ways. We have our religious practices over here, and then there's all that worldly secular stuff we do over there. When I was growing up, this was actually put to me quite explicitly. In other words, there are spiritual activities over here, less like, like Bible studies and, and quiet times and church attendance and things like that. But then over here, there's the, there's the secular stuff, you know, like your job, uh, like your, your recreation, your hobbies. And real Christians are those who kind of, I don't know, fill up their time with more of these, the first, than they did with the latter. Now, look, you can say to yourself, oh, well, I would never say such a thing. But I'll say this. It's without question that our children are picking up on this. After 25 years in campus ministry, I can tell you that I had numerous conversations very much like the one that I had with another campus minister talking to a baseball player who went to his ministry. I was talking to this kid, and the kid had agreed to be a part of his youth group growing up to go on a summer missions trip that was going to take almost the entirety of the summer. Well, in the spring, while he was playing baseball, he hurt his elbow, as baseball players do. And the doctors told him that if he planned on ever playing again the next year, he was going to need to work throughout the summer rehabbing that elbow and having to miss the missions conference, right, or the missions trip. Well, his youth director, though, got on the phone and expressly uh, um, mentioned his disappointment to the young athlete's decision not to go on the missions project. And the young man told this person that it went like this. The youth director said, look, it's like you have God over here and you've got baseball over here. You know, which one are you going to choose? And I thought, mm, okay, <clears throat> well, in addition to being a bit of a heavy load to lay on a young person, I also don't think that's true. <laughs> Remember, the idea is that the lordship of Christ is over every area of life. And that there's nothing more inherently spiritual about choosing to spend a summer on a summer missions project and one that has chosen to live my life as a skilled athlete to the glory of God. I remember my, one of my seminary professors saying it this way. He goes, look, just because you love Jesus doesn't mean you need to go to seminary. The goal a Christian has is to say, no, what does it mean for me to be in the, for instance, the realm of education, to be a teacher to the glory of God? What does that look like? What does it mean for me to, to manage this, uh, the, the finances of this, uh, uh, the bookkeeping of this organization well to the glory of God? 
And for most of us, we think, oh, well, I'm a, uh, 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 well, I guess I should uh, pass out some tracks at work. I, maybe. I don't know. How about doing your job well? <laughs> How about being excellent at whatever it is that God has called you to do? Why? Because we look to see the glory of God coming through every area of life. Abram, by the way, got it. You know how we know? Look at verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. Ooh, I love that. You know what Abram did is he fell down and he worshipped. Why? Because all of his life was going to be worship. Everything he did, he did to God's glory. He looked to God's face by falling on his face. He put his whole life together around that great presence. And that's what Christian community is supposed to be about. It is supposed to be about this great act of integration. That's what it means to be blameless. Secondly, though, God also tells Abram in order to sort of embrace this covenant, I need you to apply the sign. Bear with me for a little bit. Because what God is saying is, is I, in the midst of you going public with your commitment to me, I need you to literally be <clears throat> marked, <laughs> literally marked as being a part of this new community. And again, I've, I've come to a point where I feel, I feel like there's been way too little discussion about the weirdness of this command for Abram to circumcise himself and his family. And I realize that in the name of decorum, some details are best left unsaid. I'm not going to embarrass anybody this morning. But I want to confront some of these questions surrounding circumcision. And I want to confront them directly with this simple question. Seriously, why this sign in particular? Okay, a couple thoughts. First of all, we do know from ancient Near Eastern sources that the practice of circumcision was at least somewhat common for religious cultures of Abram's day. Uh, we've got examples of Mesopotamian cults who would use the practice as a rite of passage for young men who were pledging themselves to adulthood or something like that. So we believe that the practice wasn't probably completely foreign to Abram, right? But the second thing that we get in the Bible, though, is, is we get evidences that the significance of the circumcision was about something being cut away. That is, whenever God moves mightily into the life of something, there has to be a cutting away of something. For instance, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and, not, and be no longer stubborn. In other words, the ritual of circumcision was intending to suggest that something was supposed to be cut away from you as you pursued God's purposes in your life. Hence the sign and the reality inwardly. Paul even talks about this in Colossians 2, 11. He says, in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. But here's always been my problem. <clears throat> because if that's the only thing that the image means, it seems like, I don't know, there are other ways to do some cutting away than what circumcision suggests. I thought to myself, well, I don't know, what about that little fleshy part on your elbow that I can't feel anything anyway? Why not cut that away? What's the deal? <laughs> Bear with me. Well, this is where we have to enter into the big picture of the book thus far. Because remember back in Genesis 3, God made this prediction. Remember what he said? He said, I am going to save the world through the womb of a woman. There's going to be a child that's born that's going to uniquely embody salvation. But here's what the translation reads back in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Hmm. Okay, you catch the point now. Because 
What happened among Jewish people at that moment was that every generation of childbearing women in Israel was waiting for something. They were waiting for the Messiah. And for that reason, the sexual parts of these people were profoundly sacred. Again, we spent time talking a few weeks ago through the sacredness of the woman's womb and how the womb is the favorite target of Satan in the Old Testament storyline. How else is he going to thwart God's, God's uh, story except by causing barrenness? God is always moving to women who are barren, who can't have children. Why? Because he's showing his salvation in the midst of Satan's attempts to thwart it. But remember, if that sacred womb is going to bear fruit, it must happen through a sacred seed of the man to impregnate her. So, just as throughout the Old Testament Pentateuch, blood accompanies the sexual parts of almost every stage of a woman's giving birth, so also the male sex part must also bear the same signs. That is, if the sacred seed is going to be delivered, it has got to bear the marks of the bleeding sacrifice. That was the Old Testament way. So where is this going? Well, when God chose Abram to uniquely embody his purposes in the world, he was saying to every male, you, even you, in addition to your spouses, you're going to have to be continually reminded that your sex part, forgive me, your sex part is not your junk. It is sacred because it is God's means to deliver salvation to the world and did indeed in the story of Scripture do so, preserving the family of God right up to the time until Jesus' parents were delivered news of a miraculous birth that was to take place. Now look, it is okay to be grossed out right now because that's appropriate. The Old Testament was a bloody existence for God's people. But I really want you to follow the logic here for a second. How would things change, if at all, when the Messiah did arrive? That is, when the Holy One shows up and sheds his blood once for all, an eternal sacrifice as the blood atonement that all other sacrifices were just a picture, what is left to mark the people of God out as distinct again? Think about that. I think this is absolutely magnificent because it's as if the New Testament writers realize that once the ultimate blood has been shed, for these writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they began to look back at the rites that involved people's becoming the people of God, and they redrew them. Because there is no more blood to be shed once you have drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Now, all that remains is a washing that is, we are no longer initiated into God's family by our blood shedding, but simply through a washing. So throughout the New Testament, this is fantastic, we see signs that God replaced the rite of circumcision with baptism, a holy washing. Colossians 2 is the most vivid. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You can imagine Paul's Gentile readers being like, uh, when did that happen? Seems like I would have remembered something like that. To which Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism. There it is. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And see, and so therefore, therefore, since Israelite children were circumcised on the eighth day, 
We stand in a tradition that has stood for about 2,000 years now of baptizing infants. Oh, by the way, male and female, by the way, you see the broadening of that with Jesus comes, in order to signify and seal their entrance into this community. In other words, we bring them in so that we can teach them how to walk with God and be blameless. Same thing. To orient all of their lives around them as children of the covenant, special and beloved. I was having a conversation a number of years ago with a family member who was just chafing at the idea that we would ever baptize children or infants. And the comment was, well, I just don't like it because it seems like the infant just has no idea what's going on. To which I obviously conceded, you're correct. But let me ask you a question. When there comes a day for that child to actually embrace their faith as their own, as we pray that they do, what do you want them to say? My guess is you don't want them to say, well, you know what happened was, is I got myself cleaned up enough so that I could eventually go to heaven and be with God. You wouldn't want them to say that. You wouldn't want them to say, well, you know what came to me in my life was I was really, really, really sincere. And when I really was sincere about it, that's when I knew it was time for me to go ahead and have faith that God was going to save me. You wouldn't want them to say that either, would you? You would want them to stand up and say, no, no, I'm here because I'm a terrible sinner and Jesus is a fantastic Savior. It's all by his grace or it's not going to happen at all. Don't you see how wonderful it can be to come up alongside that child and be like, hey, and guess what? God has been at work in you before you even knew what was going on. Do you see the joy of the, of the moment to be able to bring people into the faith in that way as they proclaim their, their faith as their own? Okay, so the goal is to be blameless, to apply the sign. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, there's this command to be the father of many nations. As if to finalize the covenant, God says, I'm going to change your name, Abram, this is what it says in 4 and 5. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. I love this. I would argue that with that unique name change, which literally, by the way, translated means father of many nations, it connects Abram's, Abraham's faith with you sitting here in this building this morning. I love passages that do this. Because Paul makes this explicit in Galatians 3.27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there it is again, have put on Christ. So there's neither Jew or Greek. There's neither slave or free or male or female. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Listen to this last line. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, this is what the church means. <laughs> And there's nothing more simple and there's nothing more difficult. Because Paul is saying in verse 27 that at your baptism, you were engrafted into Christ. And having been engrafted into Christ, you, therefore, are one of Abraham's children. Now, look, it's not rare. It's not, it's not often, excuse me, that I am able to sort of apply the sermon to every age in the room. Because you want to know what the whole sermon means today? It means Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. It literally is this morning's sermon. <laughs> literally. That's it. But what I wanted you to take away from this is simply this one simple idea. Because the way Paul comprehends all of this talk about our engrafting into Christ means something to him. Very significant. And what it means for him is, is now that Jesus has become this singular orienting force in the Christian's life, 
it now neutralizes any other cultural identity marker you might have had before. In other words, now there's no such thing as rich or poor. Now we're not going to do the whole black-white thing. Now we're not going to do foolish distinctions between male and female. In other words, Jesus has come to effect a massive work of unity through Abraham's family. And, and, and therefore, I have to look and look around and say, either I am a part of that unity and an agent of that unity and breaking down walls where we draw people together, or I'm working against his purposes in the world. It's binary like that because <laughs> that's where it's going. Look, it's Advent season, and, I, and it, it bears worth mentioning that God intends for us to take our invisible commitments and make them visible. Now, why would he do that? Is it perhaps because he is a God who was invisible and became visible? I love the thought that Jesus put his money where his mouth was when he said that he loved us. So he set his glory aside. He took on a body and became a baby in a feeding trough of all things. Now, why would he do that? Because he needed desperately to show us so that we could see the unifying of humanity into the family of God, united in Christ by what God was doing through the church. Christian theologian and mystic uh, Howard Thurman wrote a wonderful uh, Christmas poem that I found in my, uh, in my illustration file. Um, and I think it just so beautifully expresses the place where Christmas is pushing us. In other words, when you see how God is healing the world through Father Abraham's children, it gets us thinking very differently about this season that we're celebrating, does it not? <laughs> Listen to this verse. He says, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, and to make music in the heart. Now that's a vision for Christmas. <laughs> that's a vision that keeps in mind what God is doing. He's fixing the world through Abraham's family. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lead us into that with sight that we don't normally have, a sight that can see what you are doing and what you're up to in us. Forgive us, Father, when we think very shallowly about how the world works, that we separate things that you care about from the things that you do. Father, we live lives of, of disintegration, but you're longing to bring us together, and you gave us this great sign, this amazing baptism, this washing, because all the blood's been shed. And you draw us into a new family. Would you, would you make us to see that? Father, even for our new members this morning, that they would get a sense of, of the unity that we have in you. Let, help us express that. Help that be real as we seek to slay all those things that would divide us and bring us apart. Only you can do that, Lord. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. And that's what we're praying for. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.